And Vaughn, do you have a grammar pet peeve? Oh, man, this morning, Simi, I got a fabulous one, and that is the NDP government's use of the term freedom of information. Because <laughs> as of yesterday, the legislation tabled in the House, there isn't going to be anything free about it. Merely for asking for the access, it's going to cost you 25 bucks. I love what you did there. I love how you brought these two things together. But this freedom of information thing is so puzzling to me. Like, why do this? Why open yourself up to this criticism? There is nothing puzzling about it. It is woven into the hypocrisy of governing. In opposition, the New Democrats made masterful use of the freedom of information law, bombarded the government with questions, got all kinds of material out, paraded it across the stage, made fun of the liberals for using post-it notes and hiding information. But what's changed is they're now, the NDP's now in government. And the thing about access to information or freedom of information, look, government media releases and staged media conferences are so the government can tell you what they want you to know. Freedom of information is for the stuff they don't want you to know. And there's no way that any government, and this is true, the last one as well, you get into government and you go, why were we going to reform this and improve access? It's just making us look stupid. So let's start to charge 25 bucks and see if we can drive away some of the requests. I don't, again, I just don't understand why they would do this, even after it's been recommended to them by the Privacy Commissioner that you don't do this. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, actually. The Privacy Commissioner in British Columbia, Michael McAvoy, is an interesting guy. You know, he worked for the NDP cabinet minister. He was a senior staffer for the NDP cabinet minister, Colin Gableman, who brought in Canada's best access to information legislation way back when, 1993-94. And the NDP was praised right across the country for this. This was the best law in Canada. McAvoy is now the commissioner. So, of course, when the government decides to change the law, they run the proposals past the commissioner. What do you think? McAvoy was quite blunt yesterday. He said, I told them, don't do the $25 fee. They did it anyway. They ignored his advice. So they are effectively not just trampling the spirit of the legislation and mocking what they themselves said in opposition, but they're at odds with one of the parents of access to information law in British Columbia, Michael McAvoy. This just stinks to high heaven when you do something like this. This will have a big impact on a lot of stories that get out. It does. You know, uh, really uh, an awful lot of... It's true that the opposition parties make good use of this, and I think that's one of the reasons the government's upset, is that the Liberals started to use it. If they're using it, they're doing their job. But a lot of media coverage comes from it, too, and a lot of our colleagues use it regularly. Uh, And if, if you put that together with... You know, several other recent stories, the the blanked out, blacked out passages and reports we've been getting, whether it's hospital data or the Massey Tunnel, you know, you put that together with that. You put it together with the rule that we have to work under at media conferences. One question, one follow-up, right? If, if they conduct the question twice, you don't get to ask it again. So you put all that together This is a government that is exercising tighter and tighter control over coverage of 
the government, right? It's yeah. the New Democrats doing this. And I have to say, Simi, uh, I've covered some governments in this province that have been in terrible, terrible political trouble, and they deserve to be. It wasn't like they didn't bring it on themselves. But what amazes me about the way the New Democrats are going about this is I would say with the pandemic and so forth, it's not like they've been getting a particularly rough ride in the coverage, right? And so why the control? I say, well, it's more to do with the nature of governing. The longer you've been in government, the more you conclude the information belongs to you, and why should I give it to the news media or the public? Is this inevitable? Is this, does this happen, Vaughn, and you've been around? You've seen this with every government that eventually comes in, that this is what they become? Yeah, institutionalized hypocrisy, yeah, I, I would say that. And, and to be honest, Simi, if it weren't for that, I'm not sure I would have as many column topics as I do. <laughs> yes, it keeps you busy, for sure. Uh, let's talk also about long-term care booster shots. We, we, this was announced, I feel like, a long time ago, and we yeah. don't, we don't make, seem to be making as much progress as we yeah. should be. Very, very effective question period yesterday, I thought, by the Liberal opposition. They went after the uh, the lag in booster shots in long-term care. And this is a lag not without consequences. A Global reported last week on the problems at the Willingdon Center where, what, I don't know, there's a dozen people dead and 90 cases, something like that. So the liberal opposition basically got up and said, why, you know, why is there such a lag in booster shots for seniors in these facilities? Seniors, uh, you know, the, the the recommended interval before you get a booster shot is six months. Well, a lot of seniors in B.C. facilities were vaccinated back in January and February. They're, they need to be vaccinated. Answer from the government, answer from Health Minister Adrian Dix was, hey, we've done 62 facilities. Well, using the government's own numbers, that's less than 20% of the facilities in the province. They've done less than 20%. Right. Other provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, which, you know, uh, BC's done better than some of those provinces on some issues, they're way ahead of us in vaccinating seniors. Um, The other issue that the Liberals raised, I thought, very effectively was they reminded the government, Dr. Bonnie Henry has said repeatedly, there's no shortage of vaccines in BC. We've got lots of the stuff, right? So, So much of it, we've been giving it away. So... I go, okay, if that's the situation, what's the holdup? Not having those booster shots is putting people's lives at risk. And the Liberals also came up with a, uh, an internal document from Fraser Health saying mm, maybe by December. That's a long time to be waiting if you've got an aged parent or relative in long-term care. I, I thought it was a very effective opposition and no answers really from Adrian Dix. And then John Horgan got up, and he blamed it on the liberals. And I I listen to this line from the premier more and more, and I go, does John Horgan realize he's actually premier of B.C.? And he has been for four years, and blaming his troubles on his predecessor is kind of wearing a bit thin, like, yeah, you inherited a mess. That's one reason why people made you premier, right? And one reason why you were reelected last year. So... What's with the excuses? Why don't you just deal with the problem? 
Yeah. So what was the excuse? How could the opposition possibly be blamed for this? Oh, you know, they left a mess behind. Yeah. I think think voters are well aware of that. I think if you asked the people who voted NDP in green in 2017 and who voted overwhelmingly for the NDP, uh, elected them a big comfortable majority last year, it was, yeah, we're looking for you to do better. And, and on this one, there's no adequate explanation for why they are lagging so far behind other provinces in vaccinating vulnerable people in long-term care where it is a matter of life and death that they get those booster shots. You know, I feel like there should be a time limit put on, you know, when political parties can blame the people who came before them. Like two years, three years, like is that, I think that's like the outside of it, right? Two well, years to know, me sounds good. You know, got away with it for the better part of 16 years, so you can't blame the New Democrats for trying. But I, I think the public patience on this one is, is maybe wearing out. And uh, really, um, they, they should put the people that are in charge of the black ink and establishing fees for access to information, they should assign them to come up with some new talking yes. points for the Premier and the Minister of Health, because I don't think it's working anymore. That one is not. Sounds like a bad day in question period yesterday for the government. Uh, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. We've talked a lot about travel in the last couple of weeks in light of the news that the United States is loosening up travel rules to that country and opening the land border and ferry crossings to get there. Now, that happens at the beginning of November. And what it means is that Canadians traveling south can do so by air, by land, by ferry, and they will not have to take a PCR test or an antigen test or any kind of COVID test that they must show upon arrival. It's not the case, though, when you come back. So when you come back to Canada, you still have to show a negative COVID-19 test. And we're talking molecular tests, so a PCR test or a very specific group of tests. Those can be expensive. They cost about $150, between $150 and $200 Canadian. But how necessary are these tests? Do we really need them? Do they make a difference in helping us figure out where COVID is coming from or preventing cases from getting into this country? Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. What do you think of these tests? Like, are they necessary? Do they help? Well, let's look at the facts. Using the testing that is already in place, we have already imported about 2,000 cases per month from returning travellers, albeit only 200 from vaccinated returning travelers, but that's still six or seven per day that are picked up in individuals who did not think they were infected, did not know they were infected, could bring it back into Canada, could spread it to others and could spread new variants to others. So this is really the issue that we're trying to face. Is this a real problem? Does it still require testing? And what are the consequences of getting it wrong, importing a new variant, creating a a fifth wave with a new variant? And this is what officials are considering very seriously right now. Right. So if we require a test, negative test to come in then, Dr. Godaway, how are these cases still making it in? Well, they're screening. Well, right now, the, the test result is available a couple of days later in some cases. It's sort of random screening of asymptomatic individuals. So they're told a couple of days later, by the way, you happen to be positive. So this is not the screening that's available uh, 
uh, you know, that's required to get back into the to the country. These are people that are then tested in a random basis and then found to be positive. So I think that uh, we need to potentially think about keep up, keeping up the testing to try and prevent the entry of, uh, of variants, especially if we're going into the United States, where most, if not all, of the COVID-related restrictions are, are removed and there is a higher risk of becoming infected once there, especially for an extended period of time. Okay, so you view this as a valuable tool? For now, I think we need to see what happens as we reopen the border. If we see that uh, the cases are calming down here in Canada, that the reopening of the border does not lead to any spikes in transmission here in Canada, then we might uh, reconsider that, uh, that particular situation. An idea that has been floated, that has some merit, is to say that if you're going down for 48 hours or less and you are vaccinated and you can test negative before you leave, uh, then in that particular situation, it may be that the risk of becoming infected during that time that you are away, especially if you're a Canadian following Canadian common sense rules to prevent transmission of COVID, that that might be of such a low-risk situation right. that we will not require testing coming back. Right. See, I think people are doing that already, Dr. Conway, and I've had numerous people email me and tell me that, is that according to the rules, then in November, what they can do is they can get a test here, test negative, use that to go back and come back if they're doing that within that 72-hour window. Within that 72-hour window, and I think that kind of makes sense, and we'll see what happens when the border reopens if applying that kind of thinking uh, does not lead to an increase in transmissions here in Canada. Right. So when the border to Canada opened in August for the United States and then in September to international travelers, did we see anything there like a spike in cases that worried you? Thankfully not. Uh, That being said, we're still within a wave where the transmission is higher than, than we would like. But we did not see a big bump. If the bump was there, it was small. So that's reassuring. Okay, so for now you feel, how long do you think before we can get a sense of whether or not this is a necessary thing to keep in place? Let us give it two weeks after the border is reopened, which is the incubation period of the virus. And if we don't see any spike in cases, then we can move forward and say this seems to be working Let's try and liberalize the regulations so that we can allow uh, move more close to to what I would say is the new normal going right. forward. But let, let's let's do this cautiously. Now, the, the other concern I know a lot of people have is that Canada requires a specific type of COVID test, right? A molecular test, which costs more money than some of the rapid tests. D- is, does that make a difference? Do you think? Well, the rapid tests are good, but the people that they tend to miss is asymptomatic individuals. They're only about 70% accurate. So if we're going to do the test, it really makes sense to do the test that is the most sensitive, the most likely to detect the cases. So if we're going to leave the testing in place in the short term, it needs to be the molecular test. Right. And clearly the Canadian government has said to people that they don't really want us to think about these kinds of day trips. But is it realistic, do you think, to stop people from doing that at this point? Uh, This is public health and the health of the public. I think that the public is saying that we need to start doing this again. And if Canadians going to the United States for day trips, behave like Canadians, understand that COVID is still around and avoid risky situations. I think that this is something that's legitimate to consider right now. 
Of course, if case transmissions go up over time as a result of this, we would need to reconsider it. But it's a reasonable next move for us to to do at this point. Behave like Canadians. I like that. Dr. Conway, thank you for your time this morning. (laughs) Thanks again for having me. Education, education, education. That has been the watchword for years now when it comes to dealing with bullying in schools. We have the terrible cases that we've heard about, that we've talked about, and we always wonder how do we make sure that kids are not bullied in school. And so there's always a hope that that education, all the work that has been done over the last 15, 20 years, would take a hold with kids and that bullying wouldn't be as much of an issue. But, and you knew there was a but coming, right? There's a new survey of 12 to 17-year-olds in Canadian schools from the Angus Reid Institute. And this was done in partnership with the University of British Columbia. And it found, unfortunately, that in this day and age, racially motivated bullying and insults are a daily reality for many youth. For more on this, we're joined by Dr. Henry Yu, who's an associate professor in the UBC Department of History and the National Forum on Anti-Asian Racism. Dr. Yu, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Did you find these results discouraging? Uh, they are discouraging in some ways. In other ways, I think they do offer a little bit of a glimpse of a hope for what we can do do about it. Um, I think what is disturbing to me, obviously, is that 6 in 10 kids witness or experience racial bullying or incidents of racism in high schools across our country. Um, that's not good news. Uh, I think... What is, for me, shocking, and it came out of uh, last year's surge in anti-Asian violence, and that, that really led to you know, us working with uh, the Angus Reid Institute uh, to ask high school students what they were experiencing, but also what they were learning and not learning. Um, because one of the things that struck me last year was how many people were surprised about yeah. the anti-Asian violence and it, as if they didn't understand racism and our long history of anti-Asian legislation and racism. And so one of the things that we found is a lot of our kids are witnessing and experiencing uh, racism, but they don't learn about our long history and what's caused, you could say, this racism. Um, so the Komagata Maru incident that uh, basically in 1908 uh, and 1914, uh, the, the exclusion of people from India and South Asia, uh, there was a law that was passed the Continuous Journey Act in 2008, and then in, 20, in 1914, uh, there was the blocking of people from India for 60 years. People didn't come from India or South Asia. And that's why there's this sense that if you're brown, you're, you don't really belong here, you came recently. Um, that long history of exclusion, only one in five kids in Canada in high school are even learning about that. Right. So, of course, how can we expect them to understand the racism that they're, that they're experiencing and seeing? Um, so I, I think one of the things, uh, you know, this, this uh, survey has come out uh, with the summary report from that forum. And in that forum uh, summary report are some solutions, we hope. And uh, one is not just education for the sake of education, but really perhaps, uh, you know, our teachers need more training in how to teach about racism and how to... So, because our kids right. are also but, reporting that they're not understanding what's going on. Right. I, the stats that I found fascinating here, too, as you point out, 58% of the youth who were surveyed say they have seen children insulted, bullied, or excluded based on their race or ethnicity. 14% yeah. said they experienced it themselves, which shows, okay, we have a lot of bystanders there. Do we need to teach people, hey, listen, you got to get actively involved to stop this from happening, too? Yeah, and I think that is one of the solutions, is that you know, it's unfortunate that we can't just rely on teachers and counselors um, in high schools. Uh, I think 
how kids respond to it, how they understand who we are as Canadians, and understanding that that we're not just uh, by default non-racist. I think is in a in a strange way we have to understand the kids have to understand that this is you know who we are. You know I, I've heard so often last year uh, you know politicians saying, well, this is not who we are. This is not who we are, and that that's great. That's very aspirational. That. And yet we haven't achieved that. It is our history. Yeah. And we and our kids have to learn how to deal with it you know, face to face when they see the incidents, how they can intervene. Uh, but also, I think, again, you, you one of the disturbing things in this survey is that a lot of those kids uh, feel their teachers don't understand. Or if they go to the teachers, they're being told, you know, uh, the wrong answers, uh, I think is the right. best way to put it. So I think that's the other thing. You know, my, my colleague, Lindsay Gibson, who who works on some of these issues in yeah. high schools and uh, he's saying we, I think we need better teacher training and, and counselors and maybe some, some in many of our schools, more diverse teachers uh, so mm-hmm. that, uh, so that the kids aren't perhaps going to feeling like they're not, they don't have someone right. to go to. Dr. Yu, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you Singing, for having me. It's often said that municipal government is the level of government that is closest to the people. I think that's true. It is the one that provides the services that affect your everyday life. It is the place where you can go to and sit and watch a meeting and watch people make decisions because it's actually in your community. So there's lots of reasons to be close to your municipal government. Well, some governments, though, they don't make it easy for you to do that. Some Surrey City councillors in particular are speaking out after a motion uh, attempted by Councillor Linda Annis to add an hour for residents to address council was shut down, voted down. According to Councillor Annis, Surrey residents are frustrated because they feel their voices are not being heard. So she had put forward this motion to add an hour to some council meetings, just like you would in a public meeting or anything, to allow people to sign up and have their say. Didn't go anywhere, though. But joining us now to talk more about this is Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. Councillor Locke, do you think something like that is needed at Surrey Council meetings? I absolutely think uh, something is needed in Surrey City Hall. There's no doubt about that. The the residents, as you said, are uh, frustrated. They feel like they're locked out of their city and their city decision-making. Um, it is needed, but unfortunately, the motion that Councillor Annis put forward was very uh, poorly thought out and really not functional in, in the way we currently uh, manage City Council. Right, so you feel there was a good idea there, but perhaps not executed in this fashion. Absolutely. The spirit and intent is, is the right thing to do. But are you going to put it at the front end of a meeting, and that would be at the dinner hour, so people getting home after work wouldn't be able to attend? And we've had city council meetings go to 2.30 in the morning. I don't think anybody wants to do it at the back end. It's, what? it's a rare rarity, sorry, that we don't go past 10.30. Right. What has changed at, at council meetings? Like clearly, there's a lot of stuff on the agenda. I mean, I remember covering council meetings, you know, back in the early 90s, and there was a time set aside, this was in Delta, to to hear from the public on matters that they felt was important to them. But over time, has that just seemed to have gotten pushed out? Is, have council meetings become too jam-packed? Well, council meetings in Surrey are, are jam-packed. We can have up to 2,000, 2,500 pages just for uh, the public hearing process for us to read before the council meeting. And we get like two and a half days to do that. 
So it's very jam-packed. And during that day, we can have um, counseling committee meetings. We have our closed council meetings often, and we always have a land use meeting as well. So we can be starting our day at noon and going through, as I said, to sometimes midnight or even later. When do you interact with the public then? When does council get that opportunity? Uh, well, there is the public hearing portion of of meeting, but that is very specified to the issues at hand. So it's very specified to the issues that are brought forward for public hearing. There is no free time for council to just talk to, or for the residents to just talk to council during a council meeting. So what would work better then? You said this motion was poorly thought out. What do you think would work better? I think city is big, or Surrey is a big city, 600,000 people. We need to, similar to Vancouver, break up our day. We should be having land use and maybe counseling committee on Tuesday and just have council uh, public hearing on, on one day. We would be able to um, find time if we had done that um, and perhaps put our... Uh, put closed council on Tuesday as well. But putting everything on one day, it's just not functional anymore. There also seems to be a lot going on with Surrey Council these days too, with this sign bylaw that happened. Like, what was the deal with that? The the sign the sign issue last night was an absolute tragedy. To see any democratic government say that on public property, people can't voice their, their opinions is, uh, is unconscionable. Um, but it did pass, and, and it's all part of the way this mayor is trying to shut out the public. He's not um, he's not open to having public dialogue at all, and so this is all part of that process. He's From the beginning, he's closed committees down. He has uh, shut the, the public out at every step. The sign bylaw is just another one, and those signs are right in the middle of a... a Elections BC plebiscite, a citizen's initiative that's going on. So it's it's a very sad time for Surrey right now. It, it just seems like there's all these stories coming out about what is going on in Surrey. Does anything seem to happen as a result or does the city, does council just continue to close itself down a little bit more? The city is absolutely closing itself down. And uh, the mayor and his uh, team are um, not interested in hearing from the public. They claim that people can write them, but that's not really um, an, an answer to the to the absolute concerns and frustrations that I hear every day from residents. The public in Syria is uh, up in arms. Is the idea then of speaking or allowing the public to speak at these meetings, is that gone now or do you foresee a a reworded version of that motion coming forward? You know, um, I uh, supported the spirit and intent, as I said, of the motion and I asked if we could do um, a friendly amendment. One hour was not functional and could we do a friendly amendment? And uh, the mayor said, absolutely not. Councillor Pettigrew then asked the same question, can we do a friendly amendment, and it just was not forthcoming. So um, I would say uh, under Mayor McCallum's um, regime, no, it will not change. But uh, certainly I think it's a, it's um, an important idea. I think it's a good idea. It just has to be functional within uh, the context of how we do business in Surrey. All right, Councillor Locke, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for having me.
It is Waste Reduction Week. Good time for all of us to take a look at what we can do better in terms of getting rid of our own waste. But we're also going to check in with local companies that are are doing their part as well. Now, there's one in particular that is basing their entire business model on the idea of waste reduction. And we're joined now, actually, to talk more about it by uh, Helena McShane, who's a Sustainability and Communications Manager at SPUD. Helena, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good morning. This is something that the company has always been doing, right? Yeah, this is this is something we've known for, for a very long time. Uh, and we've been working at it. We've been at it for a long time. And it's, you know, it's inspiring to see that more and more people are kind of waking up and, and, and getting educated and just realizing from talking about it in schools to to what we're doing this week um, and, and yeah, getting more engaged. So we're excited about that. Yeah. The, so when we talk about like a grocery store, there's a lot in a grocery store that is kind of wasteful, right? I know Spud has been talking about this. Can you tell us a bit about uh, that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, it's it's mind blowing. You, I feel like as a as a consumer, as someone who's always enjoyed shopping in the grocery store, um, I was just blown away when I learned how much waste is is created because of in store. Um, I think one thing that people don't know um, is, you know, when you shop online, there's less hands on your produce. So when you think about, oh, I like to, but I like to feel my produce, and I like to to you know see what I'm buying, it also means that so many other people have had their hands on that produce that day. Well, now so, you're grossing me out. How long? What are you doing? At <laughs> <laughs> times, it's bad. It's bad. But from a waste perspective, you can always wash your produce. But from a waste perspective, it just means that they're getting handled. And even just that step from someone unpacking it and making a display, which in itself, I think a lot of people don't realize how wasteful it is because all those oranges and apples are not going to be used. They're there to be beautiful and to inspire you, but it's it's incredibly wasteful. How it's do you wasteful. how do you get people to shake that though? Because even as you were talking, I was like, well, I like to see the produce that I'm buying. Like I like, you yeah. know, I want to pick it. So how do you get people to change that mindset? Well, I think there's two ways. I think one way is you just, you know, you have to dive in and try it, right? So by just inspiring inspiring people to try something once. That was it for me, for sure, because I, I, I just, you know, used to love being, I love being around food so and people. But um, when, when you try it once, that's, that's one way. You, you immediately realize, oh, my gosh, this is so convenient, and these apples look great. Like, why, why do I need to touch my apples that 50 other people have touched? You know, like, you realize very quickly. But also, I think in order to get people there, there's a lot of, of education um, to be done. And there's so many ways to, to inspire. So I think just making sure people know about the why and what a huge impact they can have. Because a lot of people, you know, it's hard. It's hard, incredibly hard to fight waste. Um, and, you know, we're not, we're not perfect at it. And we, everyone's just doing their best. Buying imperfect produce is something that's become, you know, trendy, cool, fun. Um, people now know that their produce doesn't have to look perfect. If you have pugly potatoes and, I love that. and carrots, yeah, and carrots that have two legs. You know, you know, the kids love it. You know what's funny about that is that if you grow it yourself, you're going to eat it no matter what, and you're going to be super proud of it. It doesn't bother you at all if it's ugly because so you think, proud. I grow this, right? I yeah. grew this. This is great. But yet, for the longest time, people have thought, well, I don't want to buy that from the store. Yeah, and I feel like it was there was a thing for a while, and they, and they 
you know, they talked about these places that sold um, uh, ugly produce and imperfect produce, but it never, it, I feel like it never really reached those, ma- those big supermarkets. You didn't really see it um, as much. It was more a fun story. So I, I'm, I'm really proud that Spud has managed to take that like, and make it a thing for real. And I know that everyone who buys imperfect produce, they, you know, they boast about it. Like it's, and it's so good for your wallet. So there's just, there's so many perks, but it's, it's nice to see it, you know, becoming right. popular. And So what else does the company do then for Waste Reduction Week? What else can your company do to make a difference? Well, I mean, we're celebrating, we're celebrating, I, you know, we're modern, we're celebrating technology and, and, and how people are getting excited about, you know, putting orders in their court, in their cart 14 days ahead. So that helps us order only what we need. Um, and, and I think that's a way everyone can help combat waste is by only ordering what they need. Um, for this week in particular, we're hosting, uh, free workshops. So that's another way, you know, in your home, because again, it's hard, it's hard, there's so much waste around you. And sometimes it can be daunting. And and you just, you know, you just need a couple tips to do, to know what you can do. So, oh my gosh, I can make my life easy by ordering online already with, uh, you know, companies who do only online produce, that means I'm reducing waste, let's just do that one thing. Or, you know what, this week, the kids are not going to school with, with plastic bags around their sandwiches. That's it. Like right. we're doing, we're doing a, a reusable, you know, um, the, what do they call the, the wax around your sandwiches? Oh, the beeswax. Reuse. Yeah. Those are they're, really good. They're so good. They're so good. You know, um, also I'm thinking just don't go to the grocery store hungry. Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes a huge difference. <laughs> That's another good way to reduce waste. And if you do invite friends over because you want to make sure um, you get, get, put your food to use, right? And that's another thing, like recipes are really helpful. My, um, the wonderful speaker at our workshop this week, Christina Wilton, her famous go-to for reducing waste is her clean the fridge soup. I love that. I do that at the end of the week. I take all the vegetables that are left and we're having soup. (laughs) That's it. There you go. And, and everyone loves soup. So it's, um, yeah, that's another helpful one. So yeah, we're doing a, we're going to, you know, giveaways. Everyone loves have prizes and, and just getting excited around the theme and giving away just those tips that people can bring with them right. um, and, and really, you know, as much as we can handle, just keeping it simple, doing what you can do um, and, and yeah. hopefully inspiring others. Too. Is, is technology the key here as well? Like for companies, for companies like yours and other companies, is it about technology so you can pinpoint the, your usage better? You know, there's, yeah, the technology is something that we uh, work really hard on and that we have like so many people who are so smart and they know, you know, exactly how to know, how to find out with the technology when that Apple is going to go bad. So that's, that's super unique for us. I think that's something that we're developing oh, and really? that, um, um, I'm excited about um, it, it. So it's not only that technology that tells you oh, this consumer is ordering this. We can order this for the next 14 days. That's their plan for their shopping. But also the apples that are on our shelves, we actually know how many days they have left. So that helps. That helps the whole, it's never about one thing. This is so so interesting to me. So you can pinpoint it for that, for every, like the produce that you put out on the shelf, you can tell how long it's going to be good for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's pretty cool. So then you can limit how much you buy. Yeah, yeah. That's how you reduce waste. So, you know, it's, 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 
technology, it's relationships with farmers, local vendors. You know what local, what does local really mean, right? I think people, they talk a lot of local, but sometimes, even for me, like before I started working with Splat, it's like local feels good, but you know, what are the exact, what are the things that really mean local fights waste? Well, it's dropping off a daily delivery instead of the raspberries having to, you know, oh, we don't want to be out of raspberries. Let's order this much. But if you know that your farmer is going to drop off next week and on Wednesday, then you can order only what you need, right? So right. those relationships help as well as technology. It's all those things together. And, you know, supporting local for us can also mean our farmers, they take their waste and they make apple chips out of it. So the apples, they can't be sold and that won't be, um, you know, not right. e- won't even make the cut for like imperfect produce. They make applesauce, they make apple chips, and then we support them by buying those products. Oh, I love all of this. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. (laughs) Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me.